If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please open in them to Revelation chapter 12. Lord willing, we will conclude the 12th chapter today. And chapter 12, as we've seen, is a, is a vision that John has given of a fantastic drama that plays out in heaven between a dragon, a woman, and her male child. The dragon, as we saw, represents Satan himself, the devil, our great adversary. The woman is representative of the community of faith that gives birth to the Messiah, the Christ child, Jesus our Lord. They are in, before he's born, the woman represents the people of God in the Old Testament, the faithful remnant of the nation of Israel. After the child is born, the woman and her subsequent other offspring, as we'll see this morning, represents the church, the people of God in the New Testament. We were introduced to these characters in the first part of this part of the vision that John was given in the opening verses of chapter 12. There we saw that these were two signs that John was given in heaven, first the woman and then the dragon. The woman, as we saw her, was pregnant. She was crying out in birth pains, representative of the people of God in the Old Testament who were longing for the arrival of Messiah. They were crying out as if in birth pains for the arrival of the promised one, the Messiah who would save his people from their sins. The dragon subsequently was red in color, symbolizing his bloodthirst, and he was also uh, standing before the woman who was about to give birth because he intended to devour the child when the child was born. But as we saw, God protected the child, and as soon as the child was born, he was caught up to heaven with God. And so we went immediately from the birth of Christ to the ascension of Christ and skipped everything in between in this vision. But not only was the child protected, but the woman was protected as well. We're told that she fled into the wilderness, literally the desert. And we saw the wilderness as a symbolic place of trial and tribulation where evil lurked. And where evil looked to harm God's people. And while she was there in that wilderness, we're told that she found a place that was prepared for her by God and where she was nourished by God for 1260 days. We talked about how this represented a time of tribulation. In my estimation, a time in the future, but it doesn't have to be. A time in which the church will endure, but, but will be endure much persecution during this time. Endure great persecution, but a time through which God would protect the church and cause the church to persevere in faith, even though many would die. Now, some hold that these 1,260 days, and, and we've seen it referred to a lot of different ways in the book of Revelation. We've seen it referred to as 42 months, 1,260 days. In this morning's passage, we'll see it referred to as the phrase, a time, times, and half a time. 
all of them literally referring to the same length of time, three and a half years, but figuratively referring to a long time that is cut short. Now, some believe that this refers to the entire time of the current church age in the present, and thus would then be representative of all the trials and tribulation and persecution that the church is enduring during this time today. And this is a perfectly valid way of understanding these 1260 days. As you know, I prefer the futurist understanding of this book, and I find that more convincing. But either way, it refers to a time of tribulation during which God will spiritually protect and provide for his bride, the church, even though she will be present, I believe, and endure much hardship and persecution, and during which many, many will suffer martyrdom and die as a result. In verses 7 through 12 of this chapter, which is what we covered the last time we were in Revelation a couple of weeks ago, we saw that the vision shifted to a battlefield a battlefield that was in heaven, and a war broke out between the dragon and his angels, his demons, and the archangel Michael and his demons. But that war apparently was short-lived. It wasn't much of a battle, because we're told very matter-of-factly in verse 8 of the defeat of the dragon. He was conquered. Verse 11 tells us how that he was conquered, by the blood of the Lamb And by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their own lives, even unto death. This is what the loud voice begins to say in heaven and, and celebrates the defeat of the enemy. That defeat of Satan in heaven symbolically referred to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. When Jesus, as was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, When Jesus, as the seed of the woman, crushed the head of the seed of the serpent, which is Satan. Satan had struck Jesus' heel during his life and at Calvary. And he tried to destroy him. But with Jesus' death and resurrection, he crushed the head of the serpent. And now he is a defeated foe. But even though he is defeated, he doesn't give up. And so the voice in heaven warns those on earth in verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And so that sets up this morning's passage perfectly. Let's read God's word beginning in verse 13, the next verse, and continuing through to the end of the chapter. Church, this is the breath of God. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman 
And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious and the woman, uh, with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you so much for the privilege and the honor and the opportunity we have this morning to gather as your people, redeemed by your sovereign grace, to be worshipers of you in this life and the next. And Father, as we turn now to your word, we ask that you would keep us in a spirit of worship as we thank you for this book and as we rely on its truth to penetrate our hearts. Father, I ask boldly that you would bring fruit from your word this morning in the lives of these gathered here before me and in my own life as well. We pray, Father, that these truths would not be something that we simply learn more about in our mind and intellectually or smarter about what it means, but God, that the intended meaning behind them would penetrate beneath the surface and bear spiritual fruit for your glory. We pray for those who may be among us, Lord, who have not professed faith in Christ as their only hope for rescue from certain and deserved judgment because of sin. We ask, Father, that you would supernaturally, during this time, make them breathlessly aware of their hopeless condition apart from you. And in the next breath, Father, Make readily apparent to them the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and bring them to faith in him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So now the battlefield shifts from heaven to earth. Satan was unsuccessful in heaven. He was roundly defeated by Michael and the archangels and he was cast down to the earth and so now in this vision the battlefield is here and as we read these verses the the drama plays out as if kind of a sci-fi fantasy movie does it not and that kind of fits the genre of the apocalyptic These fantastic images and visions are not always intended to be interpreted literally, especially the visions of this part of chapter 12. We just can't interpret these literally. They just are too strange and too fantastic, and we miss so much of the intended meaning if we just settle for understanding them literally. So we interpret them figuratively. And it does. It it plays out like a fantasy movie, like a sci-fi picture. The dragon pursues after the woman who had given birth to this male child as if he's going to exact a pound of flesh from her. He was unsuccessful in heaven. And so now he's going to seek his revenge on her, who again represents the church. And so we envision this dragon Pursuing after this woman 
And just before the dragon reaches her, just before he sinks his talons into her, she miraculously and fantastically escapes. Look at verse 14. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. And what we have in the rest of this chapter, in verses 15 through 17, is kind of an enlargement of verse 6 from chapter 12. Verse 6 from chapter 12 tells us that the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God and in which she has been nourished for 1260 days. And the bulk of this morning's passage takes that verse and just expands it and allows us to zoom in and see both how she fled into the wilderness and what life was like for her when she got there. First, how did she flee into the wilderness? Well, someone gives her two wings of a great eagle with which she then flies away from the grasp of the serpent and escapes into the wilderness. But then secondly, what was wilderness life like for her when she got there? Again, verse 6 just describes wilderness life by saying that when she got there, she found a place prepared for her by God and she was nourished for 1260 days. The second half of verse 14 is very similar. It says that the wilderness is a place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. But then verses 15 through 17 go into much greater detail about what life was like for her in the wilderness. John describes what he sees in this vision by saying in verse 15 that the serpent then poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. So a massive river of water, a torrent of waves comes out of the mouth of this dragon and the intent is to sweep her away in a flood of waters. Verse 16, but the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And so creation itself comes alive and the earth opens its mouth, if you will, and swallows the river of water that the dragon had poured out, thus saving the woman yet again. So yet again, the dragon's efforts are foiled. He didn't get to devour the child as he intended when the child was born because God took him up to heaven. The rebellion in heaven was foiled and he was defeated roundly and cast down to the earth. He didn't catch the woman when he first got down there because God gave her wings of an eagle and she flew away. And now he's foiled again as the earth itself swallows the river that the dragon had sent to drown the woman. And so now he's ticked. He's mad. Look at verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now the dragon turns his attention to the woman's offspring. And we're told that as he prepares to make war on her offspring, John sees the dragon standing on the sand of the sea. Now, some of your translations have that as the first verse of chapter 13. Other translators include that at the end of chapter 12, as mine does. 
But why is it there? It's really a transition into what comes next. Why is he standing on the sea? It is because that is the place from which he will call forth the beast at the beginning of chapter 13. It will rise out of the sea in those verses. And we'll cover that next week as we see one of the dragon strategies for doing war against the church is to send the Antichrist and torture and kill the saints. That's next Sunday. So let's try to understand what this fantastic vision is all about. One of the keys to understanding these last five verses of chapter 12 is to see the Old Testament stories that form the background for them. And then to bring those stories through a New Testament lens, a a New Testament filter, and then place them back into the figurative context of these visions. So let's look first at the pursuit of the woman. So the dragon is pursuing the woman. And right before he gets to her, she's given the wings of an eagle to fly away and escape capture. What from the Old Testament comes to mind when we hear that story, that vision? I can tell you what it would have reminded John's audience of. The churches of Asia Minor would have seen here a clear allusion to Pharaoh's pursuit of Moses and the Israelites as they fled from Egypt. All of Pharaoh's chariots, his entire army pursued after Moses and the Hebrew children and their families, pursued after them all the way to the Red Sea. And when they got there, Pharaoh's army had surrounded them. They were almost in their grasp. And what does God do? He directs Moses to spread out his hand, and he divided the waters so that the Israelites could cross over on dry land. And so they they begin to go into the Red Sea, and they cross over on dry land. Well, Pharaoh and his army were no dummies. They followed after him. They continued to pursue them onto the dry land. And when the Israelites get to the other side, the Lord told Moses to again stretch out his hands. And he caused the waters to close in on the Egyptians. This is very similar to what happens to the woman in these verses. The dragon is pursuing her. And just as he's about to catch her, she's given the two wings of the great eagle. A question, who gives her these wings? This is another one of those divine passives that we see in the book of Revelation. As we read this, we are meant to see the hand of God bringing these two wings of an eagle to the woman so that she might escape. It is God who is the source of her rescue, just as it was God who was the source of the rescue of the Israelites from Pharaoh. After the Israelites were delivered through the parting of the Red Sea, they they continue on to Mount Sinai, and God calls Moses up onto the mountain. And I want you to listen to how God, as he speaks to Moses, how God tells Moses 
to explain what had just happened to the Israelites. It's quoted in Exodus 19, verses 3 and 4. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. You see, often we find in Scripture eagles' wings being representative and symbolic of God's protection and care and rescue out of the hands of the enemy. We see it not just in the Israelites' escape out of slavery in Egypt, but we also see it in God's care of his people in the exile. During the Babylonian exile in particular, the prophet Isaiah says to God's people, as, and I quote from Isaiah chapter 40, and part of this is very familiar, but I want, want you to listen to the words. The prophet Isaiah says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? And sometimes that's how life feels when we're in the, the wilderness, doesn't it? We feel as if God doesn't see us. We feel as if maybe he's not even there or he's forgotten about us, but he hasn't. He hasn't forgotten about us. He can't forget about us because that would be in violation of his character as Isaiah goes on to explain who God is. Verse 28, have you not known, have you not heard The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So not only does he have enduring strength himself, but then he gives that strength to his people who find themselves in the wilderness. Look at verse 29. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Church, I'm so thankful this is how God ministers to those who are weak and faint and find themselves in a wilderness. He gives them power and he increases their strength to make it through. And then the very familiar verses, verses 30 and 31. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. In other words, none of us are immune to the effects of wilderness life. We all grow faint and weary at times. Even the youths, even the young men, he says. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. And look at this. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. And I would submit to you this is what happens to the woman in this vision. She's pursued by the dragon. And she's given the two wings of an eagle with which to fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. Church, the dragon pursues us too. The New Testament church has been pursued by our enemy since the beginning. And he's pursuing us today. Us, our children, our brothers and sisters, 
and he intends to steal us from him, and he intends to kill us and destroy us. Peter warns to be sober-minded and to be watchful, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking seeking someone to devour and, and note here, how does the woman escape? I would suggest, you, suggest to you that there is both a passive and active aspect to her rescue. She's given the two wings of an eagle, without which she had no hope of escape. She's given the two wings, and again, we, see, we said that this was the divine passive. This is God being the one to provide for her escape and her rescue God does this but she also has an active role in her escape she flies away at least in this instance God does not pick her up and and place her into safety he gives her the wings and we're told so that she might fly from the serpent I don't want to necessarily press the figurative language here too far but I think this is part of what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 10 31 when he said no temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man and with the temptation he will he will not tempt you beyond your ability but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it see when the dragon pursues us and attacks us There's always a way of escape. There's always a pair of wings sitting nearby. Wings with which we need to pick up and throw and and fly away with. But we got to take the way of escape. We've got to believe the truth and not believe the lies that the enemy is throwing at us. We've got to trust that his way is best. We have to trust that his rules and his precepts and his commandments are not meant to rob us of joy and delight but are meant as a means to ultimate joy and delight sometimes the temptation to sin is with our actions and our behavior sometimes the temptation is to sin with our mind and what we believe or don't believe and sometimes the temptation is just to give up And stop following hard after God. But with that temptation, there is a way of escape. And friend, I just want to encourage you, whatever temptation you're facing today in your life, I pray that you would see the eagle's wings. I pray that you would see that way of escape and trust the Father enough to avail yourself of the rescue that he has provided for you. But note also, where where does this woman's rescue lead her? Well, it leads her into the wilderness. So that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. It's like that old cliche, right? From the frying pan into the fire. Because what, what do we say the wilderness represents in Scripture? A place of trial and tribulation where evil lurks and looks to harm us. And friend, that 
That describes life in this wilderness. A place of trial and tribulation. Where evil lurks and seeks to harm us. But the wilderness is also where the woman is nourished. It's where she's cared for. It's where she's provided for. See, God's rescue of us from our enemy's grasp doesn't mean that our life will be free from obstacles. No, in fact, the Bible is clear that our life will be marked with trial and tribulation. It's called life in a fallen world. It's called life in the wilderness. As Pastor Matt preached from the book of Job last week, that God sovereignly intends a measure of suffering in our lives. And though we always don't know what the reason is exactly, He always has a purpose to it. And He intends to use that for our sanctification and the magnification of His glory. It's life in a wilderness. It's life in a fallen world. But in this wilderness, God nourishes us. He nourishes us through His very presence, through His Spirit. He nourishes us through His Word. He nourishes us through His church. And we need that nourishment. If we're going to fight against our enemy and keep fighting against our enemy, we need that nourishment. And friend, can I just ask you, are you being nourished in this wilderness right now? Are you growing in your faith? Are you feasting on his word? There is a banquet of nourishment that is set before us. Are you eating it? Are you feasting on his word, saturating your life with scripture? Are you delighting in his people, pressing into community, or are you isolating yourself? You see, the the enemy has a strategy, and it is to isolate us because we're easier to pick off when we're by ourselves. Are you growing spiritually? Brothers and sisters, there is nourishment to be had plenty and we need it if we're going to persevere through obstacles and trials and tribulations and the attacks of the enemy we need this nourishment if we're going to fight indwelling sin and to live lives that bring glory to our God so let us church let us find nourishment in this wilderness through his spirit through his word and through his church After the woman escapes to the wilderness, the serpent, he doesn't give up. He still tries to kill the woman. We're told in verses 15 and 16 that he, he pours out water like a river from his mouth to try to sweep her away with a flood. There's a couple of Old Testament stories that come to mind to form the background for this vision as well. First of all, I think it also reminds us of the parting of the Red Sea. After the Israelites make it to the other side, the, the, the waters 
come back together and swallow up. Moses even refers to the swallowing up of the waters over Pharaoh and the Egyptians in the book of Deuteronomy. But it also reminds me of the rebellion of Korah and his co-conspirators, a story that's chronicled for us in Numbers chapter 16. You can go read that on your own time. But later, as Moses is recounting that story in the book of Deuteronomy, as he's preaching his final messages to the Israelites before they cross over the Jordan and into the promised land, he reminds them about what happened in the rebellion of Korah. And he says in Deuteronomy 11, verses 6 and 7, And what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben, these are all uh, Korah's co-conspirators, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, their tent, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. And the point of both of these Old Testament stories is to demonstrate the lengths to which God will, do, will go to protect his children from the grasp of the enemy. In Exodus, their enemy takes the form of Pharaoh and his chariots. In Numbers, their enemy takes the form of Korah and his rebellion. And in Revelation 12, Verses 15 through 16, the enemy takes the form of this river that flows from the mouth of the dragon. But in each of these cases, the earth opens its mouth and swallows up the enemy. Note here that in this particular instance, the woman is completely passive. She's just rescued. There's no eagle's wings that are put in front of her with which she much must pick them up and fly away with. This escape is accomplished by God alone. And that's how it is in the wilderness sometimes. There are going to be some trials and obstacles and tribulations in your life, some arrows from the enemy that are so overwhelming and so deadly and so unavoidable, like a flood of waters rushing right at you, that you are helpless to do anything about. But God can. That's the point. With these Old Testament stories as a backdrop, I think we are simply meant to be in awe of a God who can animate creation and cause the earth to open its mouth and swallow the enemies and swallow the trials and swallow the arrows that the enemy throws. As the psalmist says in Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. David writes in Psalm 18, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. And I believe that the, the, the vision that we're given here in Revelation chapter 12 
is to lead us to this same declaration. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. He is the one in whom I take refuge. He is my horn of salvation. He is my stronghold and shield. And I think it's parenthetically, it's interesting to note here that the emphasis is on a river that comes out of the dragon's mouth. We know what comes out of the mouth of our enemy, don't we? Lies, deception, accusation, untruth. John told us earlier in this chapter that, that Satan is the deceiver of the whole world, the accuser of the brothers who accuse them day and night. Jesus said of Satan in John 8 that there is no truth in him and that when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's what Jesus said. When Satan lies, it's not like a strange thing. It's what he does, and it's who he is. And sometimes, and some of you know this, these lies and these deceptions and these accusations come at us in such a torrent it as if, it's as if we would be swept away as if by a flood. But like the Red Sea swallowed up Pharaoh, and like the earth itself swallowed up Korah and his conspirators, God's truth in Scripture swallows up the lies of the enemy and makes them as if they were never there. Listen, the greatest defense against the lies of the enemy is the truth of God as found in this book. And so the more that we read this, the more that we know this, the more that we memorize this, the more that we saturate our lives with the truth that is found here, the better equipped we are for battle. And so the dragon's 0 for 3 in trying to harm the woman. And we're not upset by that, right? He was prevented from devouring the child. She flew away from him when he pursued her. And the earth swallowed, her, swallowed up the river that he sent to sweep her away. And now John tells us that the dragon is furious. Again, verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Church, we must understand that our enemy has declared war on us. And he's furious. He didn't get his way with Jesus. And he's after us. And it's no holds barred. He will stop at nothing to get his way with us. Now, Please understand, we're not meant to cower in fear at that fact. But we are meant to accept it and to live in light of it. Whether this is pointing to a future time of trial and tribulation for the church or not, certainly the church of John's day would have seen application to their own day and their own plight as they faced persecution from Rome and Caesar. And so we too then can see application to our own day as well. And we don't need to look very far to see the enemy in our day. 
Evil is all around us in this wilderness. The enemy's declaration of war is felt on all sides. He's pursuing us and he wants to destroy us. But we must remember that he is a defeated foe. And lo, his doom is sure. And by the way, we can't let the presence of evil in this wilderness cause us to disobey our mission to take the gospel to the nations. That's a real danger when we talk about the evil that's out there. The danger is that we isolate ourselves and that we insulate ourselves from the evil out there. And we are disobedient to the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. That's why we're here. In fact, Jesus prayed for us in John chapter 17 before he was arrested. He prays to the Father, I ask not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. So we can't retreat from the world because we're sent to it to make disciples of it, to be salt and light in it. But the reality is no matter how bad it gets in this wilderness, we are promised that if we are his, he will see us through it and we will be rescued from the enemy. Now that doesn't mean that we won't be harmed in this world. We're about to get to chapter 13. And when we get there, we will see that many saints are killed by this beast. But even in death, God will ultimately save his children. Even if martyred, God will ensure that our faith will remain and that we will persevere to the end and that we will be rescued from death unto life. John describes the offspring of the woman in verse 17 as those who keep the commandments of excuse me, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's how he describes the church, the, the, the believers in Christ, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. But that's descriptive, not prescriptive. I would submit to you that's indicative, not an imperative command. In other words, it's, it's not that we are saved because we keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. But instead, we keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus because we have been saved and we are new people. We've got a new heart. We've got a new life. And that's what it means to be saved. These are the fruits, the evidence of those who have conquered the enemy by the blood of the Lamb, as John said earlier in this chapter. And that really is what divides all people on the face of the earth, the blood of the Lamb. It divides all people in this room and in the wilderness out there into two groups of people. Those who have professed faith in the blood of Christ shed on the cross of Calvary, his death and resurrection as their only hope to be rescued from what we all deserve, which is eternal judgment because of our rebellion against the king. 
and those who have not. They might be trusting in something else, but they're not trusting in Christ. They might be trusting in their church attendance. They might be trusting in a religious experience they had at some time. They might be trusting in their ability to be really good. They might be trusting in their ability to be better than the person next to them. But they're not trusting in Christ alone. And friend, if you're over here and you've never trusted in Christ alone, please know that if the Bible is true, and it is, it tells us that you have no hope of ever seeing God apart from repenting of your sin and trusting in the finished work of Christ alone. And I pray that you would. But friend, if you're over here and you have trusted in Christ and you're one of his children by sovereign grace through faith in him, you're still in the wilderness, I know. And the enemy is still attacking you. And the arrows are still coming. But no matter how bad it gets, even if it costs you your life, your home is still secure. And your eternity is set. And in the words of Martin Luther in his famous hymn, writes... Know that you have a mighty fortress in your God. He's your helper amid the flood. Know that the right man is on your side. A man of God's own choosing. Christ Jesus, who's won the battle for you. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness is grim, but we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And so may we, church, let all goods and kindred go. In this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abides still, because his kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Our Father, as we talk about this fantastic vision of the enemy and how he is attacking the church. There is a reality to this, Father, that transcends visions and metaphors. Many in this room are enduring life in this wilderness in an acute way. All of us as followers of Christ, are experiencing life in this wilderness in some way. God, would you be gracious through this scripture to drive deep down into our soul 
that you are our rock. You are our fortress. And no matter what the enemy throws at us in this life, we know that he's been defeated at Calvary. And one day he will be thrown into the lake of fire. Until then, Lord, give us strength. Give us strength to endure, to persevere, to be faithful witnesses of you, to point to the cross for us, for our children, for our neighbors, our co-workers, as the only hope. We are so thankful, Father, that you and your divine wisdom have made a way for sinful people like us to be reconciled to you. That is our only hope. Father, we pray for those who are among us, perhaps even in this room, who at this moment are trusting in something else to make themselves acceptable to you. Lord, would you show them the folly of that thought and reveal to them the glorious good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ has paid the price for sinners. We pray for those individuals, Father, that you would give them faith to trust in Christ alone, to rescue them, not just in this life, but for the next. We love you, Father, and we can't wait to see you face to face. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.